Robert Millard, and you are haunted. Thanks to my listeners for sending in your true ghost stories and paranormal experiences for this festive Christmas special. Our first email comes from Peter in Whitstable. Nowadays it's the Coca-Cola truck or a John Lewis ad where an orphaned polar bear gets a new hat. But when I was a boy, the real signifier that festive season was upon us was the Christmas fair at the local church hall first Saturday in December, every year. What's more exciting at that age than the onset of Christmas? Presents, big American films on telly, house filled with sweets and cakes, and two weeks off school. Once the fair came round, that was it. You were a few doors into your advent calendar and Christmas was go. I was still at infants this particular year, so it would have been around 1980. The hall was crammed with women in big, thick overcoats, with small children trailing behind, and you'd have to squeeze your way past to look at the wares. It was half jumble sale, half indoor fate. Stalls laden with homemade table decorations, a sprig of tinsel round a candle, oranges with clothes shoved in them, and stocking fillers, like baskets of soap for mums and hand-knitted toys. All this, along with second-hand bric-a-brac, loose Star Wars figures missing the guns, and a cardboard box filled with old beanos and whizzer and chips, rolled up with elastic bands, 10p a bundle. Music piped out of the speakers, though they only had one cassette, Johnny Mathis and Slade, and that one about a drummer boy that's funny at that age because they keep saying bum. There was always bigger boys too, running round noisily, rougher boys in parkers, the bottom of their trainers squeaking against the wooden floor. They were probably only about nine or ten. They weren't interested in the teddies or tombola, and they certainly couldn't be seen going into the grotto. Like many small children, I was a bit scared of Father Christmas. Between the hat and the beard, you couldn't see much of his face, and I didn't like the way you were led to him, taken in where he'd be sat waiting. You only got led to things that were bad. To the headmasters if you were getting done, or the doctor so he could prick you with a needle. Gran took me in that year. The grotto was up a few wooden steps, past the toilets, and tucked away in a side room they used to store the extra chairs. The walls of the hallway were decorated with paper chains, and those snowflakes you made by snipping holes in a folded sheet of A4. As you waited in line, the kid who'd just been in would pass you on the way back out. Some would be skipping by with a present, while others, you could hear their shrieks from way back in the queue, before they'd run past in tears, their parents sharing a smile and a knowing tut with the other grown-ups. Usually it was local blokes inside the costume, and mate of my dad did it one year. I was a bit old for it by then and recognised his voice right away. I remember thinking, I once saw you piss all over the saddle of your neighbour's bike after he'd complained about your lawn, and now you're asking me if I've behaved. But I think the Father Christmas of 1980 was someone they'd got in. When it finally came to my turn, I lingered in the doorway to the grotto until Gran pushed me inside. It was quite dark in there, 
illuminated solely by strings of fairy lights. They've made the room smaller by hanging white bedsheets from the ceiling to give a sort of igloo effect, but also to hide all the junk. Father Christmas beckoned me over to the corner, where he sat in an old armchair, with an elf helper stood by his side, one of the older ladies from church in a pair of plastic antlers. I'm sure I didn't notice at the time, but looking at the photo they took of me on his knee, the Santa outfit was incredibly cheap looking. A hat and jacket made of thin red felt, and a beard that was a flat sheet of cotton wool, hooked over the ears. The thing that really stands out is how thin he was, with no padding to make him look fat and jolly, no cushions stuffed down the front. He wasn't even wearing gloves, with these skinny wrists poking out of the sleeves. It was freezing in the grotto, more so even than the main hall, and you could see Father Christmas's breath as he spoke. When I sat on his lap, I felt the cold of him seeping through my clothes, he asked if I'd been good that year, and I told him yes, apart from when I'd accidentally broke a window in my dad's greenhouse with a football. I don't know why I told him that. I'd forgotten all about it. That's nothing important, he said, and I wondered what happened if you had been bad. You probably didn't get a present. Even at that age, I was aware that he wasn't doing the voice, the whole ho ho ho. <laughs> and he didn't even ask me what I wanted. The elf handed me a present from the boys' pile and motioned for me to leave. And as I walked back out to my gran, Father Christmas told me, Be good. We returned to the hall for the reading of the raffle, where there was a commotion at the back. One of those bigger boys, a lad with hair like Robin Asquith, came pelting down the steps with Father Christmas's beard in his hand, being chased by the elf. He pushed past grown-ups, sliding on the tables and giving her the runaround, until a dad grabbed hold of him and snatched back the beard, giving the boy a clip round the ear for his troubles. You couldn't get away with that now. A little later, Gran had won some oil of Yule, and we were headed to the exit, when these terrible screams came from the street outside. Just down from the church hall, a small crowd had gathered round the pavement. Some were looking into the sky, while others were being physically sick or turning away with their hands over their faces. Gran told me not to look, but we had to walk past on the way home. From the other side of the street I couldn't resist a peek. It was a child, or at least had been, before it had been smashed. The legs and upper torso had been separated with an oddly festive red and white mush where the middle had been, scattered across the road in a vague star shape, like someone had dropped a strawberry Mr. Frosty. The rest of him was completely untouched, arms outspread, face down, Robin Asquith hair. The local gazette said he'd been crushed by a falling lump of ice. They reckon it must have come off the bottom of a plane, but the odds for something like that must be astronomical. It was well into spring before the rain finally wore the stain off the pavement. As a side note, I tried sending you the photo of me and Father Christmas, but when I take a picture of it, it always comes out funny, with all these white specks completely covering it, like a blizzard.
This was sent in by Damon. This is a second-hand story told to me by a chap I play golf with sometimes. A few years back, he took his kids on one of those holidays to Lapland. Stay in a log cabin, feed the reindeer, all of that. All the magic of Christmas. Halfway to the real Santa's workshop on a husky ride, the runner comes loose on the sled and it has to be fixed, so he goes off into the trees for a whittle. As he's finishing up, he hears these strange voices off in the woods. Said it sounded like puppets. He follows the sound and comes upon a clearing where there's a guy smoking a roll-up stood next to this big cart that's piled up with clothes or something. As he gets closer, he sees it's all these little bodies. He said they weren't children, as he'd feared, and in fact they only looked half-human, like E.T. in a onesie, but with these big noses and pointy chins. Bloke signals to someone, and the cart lifts up and tips them all into this big pit, on top of a load more, all rotten and bent with flies buzzing round. One of them was only half dead and starts crawling out, so he nods to another one of these things which was stood there helping him, and it goes over and bashes its head in with a candy cane, kicking it back in the hole. I suppose they don't have a union, poor sods, being worked to death making PS5s and baby Yodas. That said, this guy is a bit of a liar. Another time he said he went in the toilets and a dick popped through a glory hole, so he kicked it as hard as he could and the end came right off like the top of a muffin. But then I think, weirder stuff's been proven true, hasn't it? So why not elves? Almost made me think twice about getting the kids to write a Christmas list. But then, what are we supposed to do? Not have any presents? This is a story from Seb in Yeovil. I think you tend to remember Christmases from a kid by what presents you got that year. It would have been 1989 when me and my brother got a snooker table shared between us. We both suspected as we'd been banned from the spare room since two days before Christmas Eve. And when we got up on Christmas morning there was a bow on the door and it was all set up inside waiting. There was barely the space for it, and you had to breathe in to even get round one side. But it was brilliant. I was ten at the time. My brother was eighteen months younger. We were still getting our first game in when the doorbell went. Nan and Grandad weren't due over until Boxing Day, so I went downstairs to see who it was, where a man I didn't recognise was standing in the living room. I looked towards my dad, who said, This is your uncle, before trailing off. Rupert, said the man. Uncle Rupert, repeated Dad. I'd never heard of an Uncle Rupert and asked whose brother he was, Mum's or Dad's. Not sure, said Mum. I'll get the kettle on. Uncle Rupert removed his coat and just dropped it on the floor before my dad picked it up and hung it in the hall. Me and my brother didn't think much of it and went back upstairs to finish our game. When Mum called up the stairs to tell us dinner was almost ready, he was still there, sat on the sofa, cold cup of tea beside him, not saying a word. Mum made me set an extra place, and as we went to sit down there was a bit of a moment between my uncle and father, not a standoff as such, more of a look, from Rupert. Dad stepped aside and pulled out the chair at the end, where Rupert took his place at the head of the table. We ate in silence, at least. Me and my family ate. 
Rupert didn't put anything in his mouth and just kept cutting the food, methodically cutting and cutting until it was all tiny, until it was mush. I didn't see him eat or drink anything the whole time he was there. Sat that close, I was able to get a better look at him. Age is impossible to say. When you're a child, every adult is old, whether 20s or 50s. But I remember thinking he didn't look anything like either of my parents. He was almost too average to describe, and I can't picture him now at all, only that, though his expression was completely blank, there was something in his eyes I didn't much like, like laughter, at our expense. He was very still. I looked at his chest to see if it moved, if he was even breathing. I couldn't be sure. Between dinner and pudding, as is family tradition, we all pulled a cracker. He had such a tight grip on his, I almost fell out of my chair when the end gave way. The prize was one of those cellophane fish that's supposed to tell your fortune when you put it on your palm. They always just curl up, but when he lay it in his hand it stayed completely still, perfectly flat. We all put our paper crowns on, and he seemed to be copying us when he saw what we were doing, sliding this yellow crepe on. When I picked it up later to put it in the bin, I noticed there was something smeared on the inside, flesh-coloured. Through my telling, you might not fully appreciate the oddness of that day. It wasn't just that an apparent stranger seemed to be both dominating the atmosphere and having his presence go completely unaddressed. I mean, there was no chat about how he'd been or what he was up to lately, as there would be with a real uncle or family friend. The thing that felt off was the way my parents were so distant so phony. You know the way most people are on their best behaviour in someone else's home, or when talking to a shop assistant or the gas man, the fake generic you that's all small talk and chuckling about the weather. That's how they were that day. This was our home, so why couldn't they be themselves? One time, not long before that, Dad had seen off a salesman who put his foot in the door to stop him from closing it, shoving him so hard that his briefcase went flying down the driveway. Dad wasn't some nervous type and was very protective of his home and family. When we got a second alone together in the kitchen, I asked him what was going on. Who was Uncle Rupert? Why was he still hanging around? Nothing's going on, he said, chirpily. Come on, Queen's speech is about to start. As we all sat there, quietly listening to her match, I thought Uncle Rupert would probably leave when she was finished. But by the time Noel's Christmas present started, he'd made no sign of making a move. That edition of the show was pretty typical. Surprise family reunions, Noel giving a new stereo to a headmaster with Parkinson's. But the big story at the end was about a family who'd gone through a tragedy the previous Christmas. Unthinkable suffering, Noel had said. Funny the things that stick with you. Understandably, they kept it light on details but it centred on a pair of children raised by their grandparents after they'd been orphaned. I looked it up some years later to read the full story. The dad had deliberately set himself on fire during Christmas dinner, calmly poured brandy over his jumper instead of the pudding and struck a match. The mum had just sat there and watched while the kids ran to the neighbours for help, and both parents had gone up with the house. Anyway, Noel sent the kids to Disneyland, tanging along himself with a film crew. It's at this point Uncle Rupert spoke to me, 
the one and only time he would. The settee creaked as he leaned forwards, peering round my mother to meet my eye. Would you like to go to Disneyland? <laughs> Not with Noel Edmonds, I joked, in a nervous little voice. Then I noticed my mother's hand was gripped into her own thigh, so tight the fingers had gone white. She was still smiling, but there was a wet line trailing from the corner of her eye, forming into a drip on her jaw. We all just stayed there, watching whatever else was on the telly, before eventually, thankfully, just as it was starting to get dark, Uncle Rupert stood up and went into the hall without a word, putting his coat on. Are you off? said Dad. Kids, say goodbye to your Uncle Rupert. Rupert didn't respond, just looking us over with that same vacant expression he'd had the whole time, but still with that teasing flicker in his eyes. It made me feel small. Mum told him, It was lovely to see you. While Dad waved him up the path with a, Mind how you go. Within seconds of closing the front door, something seemed to dawn on them, and their demeanour completely changed. Dad had this expression of absolute horror, hurriedly putting the chain on the door and clicking the latch down. Mum put her hands to her mouth and burst into tears as Dad threw his arms around her, and they both began loudly sobbing. He pulled us into the hug too, and we stayed there until Mum broke away to quickly pull the curtains and turn off the light. We all went to bed early that night. I could hear them whispering through the wall, whispering and crying. We moved after that, 50 miles away, had to change schools. It seemed odd at the time because we got on really well with the neighbours on both sides. Mum and her next door were best mates, but there was a for sale sign up by New Year. As for Christmas Day 1989, we've never spoken about it. Me and my brother got bored of the snooker table by spring. We took it with us, but never put it up. This next email was sent by Richard. I'm glad my kids are grown. Because it seems like every week, schools are making you send them in dressed like someone from a book, or cobble together some fucking toot and carmoon outfit at the last minute for Egyptian week. But when mine was small, there was only the nativity play. You get a bit sick of the same story every year, but it was new to me then, so I was still being the proud dad. Besides, I thought it would be good for them. It had been a tough few months for the school. Little blighters losing so many of their classmates like that. Out of control tractor, minibus that never made it to Marwell Zoo. Nasty business. Alright, so my little girl was still just a donkey and didn't have any lines, but it's all politics, isn't it? The teacher who was casting didn't like me because I shook his hand too hard at parents' evening. Anyway, this was the early 90s, before schools got worried a nonce might sneak in, so the hall was packed. It's your standard nativity, opening round of little town of Bethlehem, Kids stood fiddling with their costumes, not paying attention. One of them bursting into tears when he forgets his lines. But then they get to the bit where it goes, And lo, the angel Gabriel came down. And it did. This angel. A big gasp goes up, because the special effects are way better than you're expecting. 
It looks like it just came out of an opening in the air, somehow. And it's not a child with tinsel wings, but a man. Looks like one of them cunts from the old paintings. No shirt on. Absolutely ripped. And beautiful, really, for a fella. Like, you know the way you sometimes feel uncomfortable during drag race? He unfurls these enormous wings, and there's so much light coming off him, you can't even look. It floods the hall and everyone turns away from it, covering their eyes. When it dies down, he's gone. Like he was never there. Some of the kids immediately start crying. And they're all confused. The teachers too. A couple run out in tears and one of them drops to her knees and starts praying. The play's just fallen apart. The headmistress gets up and apologises, asking everybody to leave. When she gets home, my daughter says her friend was really upset because he was meant to be playing the angel, but never got to do it. At the start of the next term, I got talking to another dad at the school gates. He'd been filming the show on his camcorder. A few days after, some bloke knocks on his door. Bloke in fancy robes, says he's a bishop. Asks if he can borrow the tape, then gets in the back of this big posh car and drives away. Never heard from him again. He was especially mad because it was his only copy. And there was an episode of Keeping Up Appearances he'd not got round to watching on there and all. Richard! Fucking classic, mate. Have you seen the one where she falls in mud? Our final letter comes to us from Gloria, in Tyneside. Every year, when people talk about the odds of a white Christmas, I'm taken back to the Christmas of 1969, as a child in the northeast of England. It came down on the 23rd, so thick that within a couple of hours, the entire lawn was covered. Of course, me and my brother were soon out playing in it, running round the garden of our parents' bungalow and pelting each other with snowballs. Eventually, he got cold and went back inside so I set about making a snowman. He was the perfect specimen, like something you'd see on wrapping paper. Big round body with a head plonked on top, two pieces of coal for eyes, a carrot nose, and spindly tree branch arms, which had fallen on our side from the neighbor's order. I finished him off with a row of buttons and a scarf to keep him warm, and gave him the name of Mr. Cold, After getting called in for my tea, I sat proudly watching him through the kitchen window, stood at the bottom of the garden. When we'd finished eating, my brother went outside and kicked him to pieces. I was distraught, and though he got in trouble for it, I eventually got told off too, for making too much fuss. It's just bloody frozen water, Dad had said. But the next morning, Mr. Cold was back, a bit further up the garden. Mum and Dad swore they hadn't done it, but I knew they'd rebuilt him because of how upset I'd been. My brother didn't want to play out that day. He said the snowman was watching him, and that he had it in for him. Later on, when he came outside, I just knew he meant to destroy it again. I tried to hold him back, but he managed to pull out Mr. Cold's eyes and throw them over the fence. That evening, just before bed, he went outside and finished the job. 
but the novelty had worn off by then, and it was Christmas tomorrow, so I just let him. And on Christmas morning, I'd forgotten all about it. With the excitement of presents and everything going on, I didn't give it a second thought. Until we were eating our turkey and sprouts, and I gazed out towards the garden to see that Mr. Cold had returned once more, with empty sockets where his eyes had been. And he was halfway up to the house. That night, it was me who demolished him, stomping all the snow flat and scattering the remains all around the garden. It was starting to thaw by then anyway, with patches of lawn visible through the thinning white. But even so, I found myself a little afraid to draw back the curtains the next morning. I slept in late on Boxing Day, and when I finally looked outside, now standing only a couple of feet away from the bedroom window, was Mr. Cold. Or at least, a decaying version of him. No more had fallen overnight, so by then he was more mud than snow, with a slouched posture shaped out of that brown slush which hangs around long after the chocolate box pictures of pure white streets. His flesh was speckled with blades of grass and the dark flakes of dead rotten leaves. His face wore the indentations of my dirty shoe print. I dismantled him one final time, using a broom to sweep him away to all four edges of the garden. There was a bright noonday sun overhead, and by late afternoon, every trace of the snow had melted. It was a relief the following morning to gaze upon an empty garden. However, right underneath my bedroom window, there lay a gnarled, mouldy carrot, a carrot I'd tossed into a hedge the day before. Next to it was a branch, reaching up from the ground towards the glass, just touching it with the tip of its finger. I brought them both inside and threw them in the fireplace. Nowadays, what with global warming, we don't get much snow and haven't had a proper white Christmas for years. Still, it doesn't hurt to keep a few sacks of salt ready, to get that lawn covered at the first sign of frost. As always, let's finish with some short ones. I'm Pickle Chairman Mao of Twitter says, I opened the door to some carol singers, but there was black light coming out of their mouths and they were levitating, which wasn't very festive, so I only gave them 20p. From Chogger the Spod, last year my office did a secret Santa. My Santa gave me the Spear of Destiny which pierced Christ's side on the cross. I felt bad because I bought mine a mug with fart machine on it. And Sophie in Newport tells us, we got our kid one of those elf on a shelf things. When we were sleeping it kept getting out through the old cat flap and leaving us presents. Worms, dead mice, birds that were coughing up blood. Each gift was bigger than the day befores, and by December the 20th it bought a human hand. So we tied the elf to a brick and chucked it in the river. You Are Haunted was written, produced and performed by me, Stuart Millard. To support the show and get early access to episodes, go to patreon.com slash franticplanet. Find me on Twitter at franticplanet. And check out franticplanet.com for my other writing. 
credit for all music is in the show notes. You off are you mate, yeah? Don't fall down a hole, will ya? Don't you fall down a fucking hole.